All right, welcome everyone to another episode of Behind the Human. I am your host, Mark Champagne, and it's my job to unpack the stories and mental fitness practices of people living at the top of their game personally and professionally. Today, I'm chatting with Glenn Livingston, who is a veteran psychologist and is the author of the hugely successful book, Never Binge Again, Delusion by What Traditional Psychology Had to Offer overweight and or food obsessed individuals, Dr. Livingston spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via work in his own patients and a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. Most important, however, was his own personal journey out of obesity and food prison, love that terminology, to a normal, healthy weight and a much more lighthearted relationship with food. Welcome to the show. Mark, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this all week. Amazing. Well, let's let's jump in. I mean, before we get into uh, all the topics and, and your work, I always love to just start with, you know, who's the person on the other side here? So the, the question everyone gets is, you know, who are you or what defines you as the lovely human being you are? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's a deeper question than I was expecting, but I'll... I'll, I'll... <laughs> I'll do my best. I, I sure. think the, the most important thing I want your listeners to know is that I'm, I'm not just a doctor who decided to work with um, people that were overweight or had eating problems. I'm, I'm someone who had a really serious problem myself. Like, like I mean, if you stopped at the 7-Eleven in Woodbury or the Woodbury Country Deli and they were out of pizza or Pop-Tarts, it's probably because I was there before you. Sure. Um, so... When I was about 17, I'm I'm 6'4", and I'm moderately muscular, and I figured out that if I worked out for a few hours a day, I could eat whatever I wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, like like whole pizzas or two or boxes of Pop-Tarts or boxes of muffins and donuts and boxes of chocolate bars, and I I, kind of like to eat by the box. And I didn't really think it was a problem. I was thin and healthy and, um, you know, I was sleeping it off a bunch and I was exercising a lot, but for a 17 year old guy, that was okay. Just made myself into a big exercise eating and pooping machine. Right. Yeah. Um, (laughs) but when I got a little older, I, I was married at 22 and I wound up living on Long Island, about two hours away from where I was going to school in the Bronx. And so I was driving two hours to go see patients and go to school and take classes. And then I have to drive two hours back. And then, you know, my wife at the time wanted to talk to me, God forbid. And and I just didn't have the time to work out like that. But I found that the, the food had a life of its own. And I started to get a little heavy, not very back then, but I started to get a little heavy. And that didn't bother me as much as the fact that the obsession with food was taking me away from being a great psychologist. Because mm. I'm, I'm from a family of 17 psychotherapists and psychologists, by the way. Okay. So <laughs> it's in the family, that's for sure. Well, yeah, that, the standing joke is that if something breaks in the house, everybody knows how to ask it, how it feels, and nobody knows how to fix it. Um, <laughs> but, but I mean, the reason that's important is that, first of all, it was always critically important to me to be a great psychologist. And 
Secondly, I think it warped my perception of the solution later on. I'll explain to you that in a minute. But what bothered me the most in those early days when I was getting heavier, when I was still obsessed with food, was that I couldn't be 100% present with my patients. Like, like One thing about psychology a lot of people don't understand is that it's not really an intellectual endeavor. You, you think it is, and there are a lot of things you have to know. Certainly, there's a lot of study and licensing and all that kind of thing, but... But really, in the end, it's not about how much you know. It's more about can you maneuver in such a way to get people to love and trust you enough that they're willing to think new thoughts and try new things. And yeah, yeah. And so in order to do that, you have to be really present, and you got to be able to lend people your soul, and they can tell you they can tell if you're not there. They they just know. How did you start the know, Glenn? I mean, was it because I mean it's hearing you hearing you say that sounds obvious but i think most of us you know we're in a in a world in a society of autopilot that you don't even see those signs of of you not being in that present moment was there something that was really clear for you um well you know i wasn't binging all the time so there were times when i was eating healthy and present and so i could really tell the difference okay and and so I know when I'm really with someone, when I pause, if they ask me a question, I, I know when I'm really with someone, if I can feel their feelings, um, yeah. I, I think you're feeling relatively calm and intrigued at the moment. Um, yeah. You know, so I, I, think, I think that I'm here with you. I, I don't know 100% for certain. And I know if I'm really with someone when there's a natural curiosity inside me about them. Um, okay. so I, I'm less focused on my own thoughts and my own agenda and more focused on like who they are and what they need. So that, that's the best way I could describe it. That's how, that's how I knew. And what I would be thinking about instead, I'd be you know, sitting with a suicidal adolescent and I'd be thinking, when can I go get a pizza? You know, and, yeah. and so that, that really bothered me. That really, really bothered me. And I, I never lost anybody, thank God. I work with a, a lot of suicidal kids. And I work with a lot of uh, couples right after they had an affair. And only two of them after got, ever got divorced out of hundreds. So I, I meandered along anyway. And mostly that was by compensating with hard work and supervision. But I really wasn't all that I could be. And... Um, as the years went on, I tried to solve that in a very psychological way. I figured that there must be a hole in my heart. And if I could figure out how to fill the hole in my heart, then I wouldn't have to fill the hole in my stomach. So I, I figured I was eating because I'm, you know, psychologically upset about something. And, and I went to the best psychiatrists and psychologists in the New York City area and you can imagine we knew them coming from the family that I came sure. from. Right? <laughs> you had a roster for sure. <laughs> I did. And I went to Overuse Anonymous and I went to nutritionists and I took medication. And I even eventually did my own 40,000 person study. And um, it's all with the theory that I could love myself then. It's all the theory that I could heal my inner wounded child and that would fix the problem. And it didn't. It was a really soulful journey. I'm glad that I took it. I learned a lot about myself. I think it turned me into an um, interesting human being, a soulful human being. 
but I would lose some weight and then I would gain more. And I'd lose some weight and I would gain more. And it just didn't work. At the time, at the same time, I was, you know, doing my clinical practice and being a, you know, a sit-down psychologist. My ex-wife, my wife at the time, was traveling for business. So I had an awful lot of time to do, develop a second career. We didn't have kids. And I worked at home. So I started consulting for the big food industry and the big pharma industry. And I, I kind of wish that I didn't do it. I feel like I was on the wrong side of the war, but, but I did. And one of the things that struck me that started to change the paradigm with which I was thinking about food, or at least make me question it, was that these big food companies were engineering these hyperpalatable food-like substances. They're, they're all designed to hit the bliss point in the reptilian brain without giving us enough nutrition to, to feel satisfied. Sure. Right? And that when you do that, that, that it's like hijacking your survival drive. It, um, it, it makes you feel like you don't want fruit and vegetables anymore. What you really want is what's in those bags and boxes and containers. And I said to myself, you know, that doesn't have anything to do with the fact that my mama didn't love me enough or I'm not in a great marriage. That's, that's an external force aligned against me that's aligned against everyone. And at the same time, I was working with the advertising industry and I saw how effective they were at convincing you that you needed these things to survive, that these, you know, these were the evolutionary buttons that they were pushing. So, for example, I remember the VP of a major food bar manufacturer pulling me aside and saying, you know, I'm leaving the company and... I want to tell you the most profitable insight we had was to take the vitamins out of the bars. And we put the wow. money in, right? Wow. He took the vitamins out of the bar. They put them into making the packaging very vibrant and diverse colored so that it would signal the availability of a diversity of nutrients. In nature, you know, they tell you to eat the rainbow, right? Like eat a salad with mm -hmm. green lettuce and yellow carrots and blueberries and purple cabbage and um, red tomatoes. You're getting a diversity of micronutrients when you do that. But what was actually happening here was that they were faking us out. They, they, there was actually less nutrition in it and more of the appearance of nutrition. Um, and that, that kind of mimics some parasitic relationships in nature. There's this one fish that likes to get its teeth cleaned by another fish. So the big fish um, loves to have its teeth cleaned and the little fish comes along and does a little dance to signal that it's ready to clean its teeth. And the big fish goes into a trance and the little fish goes in and eats the seaweed out of its teeth and it's a win-win situation. <laughs> but then there's this other fish, I learned this from Robert Cialdini, there's this other fish that learned how to mimic the dance of the little fish so that the big fish would open its mouth and go into a trance. And then the, this other fish, the parasitic fish, comes along and it eats the fish's mouth. Just, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, I think that's, I started saying to myself, that's what's happening. That's, that's what's happening in the food industry, in the advertising industry. That's what's still happening. <laughs> it's what's still happening in the, it's still happening. And I don't mean to single out the food bar manufacturers, because this happens all across the industry. Yeah, um, And pe people think that advertising doesn't affect them, but it, it turns out it affects you more when you think it doesn't affect you because 
you've got your cells resistance down. So mm. I said, okay, well, that's two major forces. And then I was looking at the neurology of addiction, and it's, it seems to largely come from the reptilian brain. And the reptilian brain doesn't really know love. It, it, when, it, when the reptilian brain looks at something in the environment, it says, do I eat it, do I meet with it, or do I kill it? It's like a college drinking game, eat, mate, or kill. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so here I am spending 20, 30 years of my life trying to love myself in and you know, overcome this food addiction using love. But the, the reptilian brain doesn't know love. And so I, I think maybe I'm on the wrong track. Then the, the last thing that really made me flip the paradigm, and I'll tell you the, the paradigm I arrived at was more of an alpha wolf paradigm. Um, you know, because like when an alpha wolf is challenged for leadership in the pack, it doesn't say, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug. It snarls and it growls and it says, get back in line or I'll kill you, right? It just sure. it starts with superiority. Well, okay. So I did this study. I, I was getting paid all this money to do these studies for big companies. So I decided to do a study of my own. This is back in the days when internet clicks were cheap. It's like late 90s, early 2000s. And I intercepted people when they were searching for some type of stress relief. And I asked them what they were stressed about. And I asked them what types of foods they had trouble controlling when they started eating them. And I saw some interesting patterns. I saw that people who struggled with chocolate like I did, I, all my binges started with chocolate and then they kind of progressed to pizza and everything else. But people who struggled with chocolate, they tended to be lonely or brokenhearted sometimes a little depressed. The people who struggled with salty, crunchy things, they tended to be stressed at work. And the people who struggled with soft, chewy things like bagels and breads and pastas, they tended to be stressed at home. And I thought to myself, um, wow, this is really interesting. Maybe I can figure this out finally. And I decided to talk to my mom and like, start with myself because I was the best example. And my mom was the therapist and also a chocoholic. So I said, mom, I found this really interesting thing and I don't really know what it means. I, I mean, yes, I'm in a bad marriage, so I am kind of lonely and brokenhearted, but what, um, how did this get set up? How did this start? And she gets this horrible look on her face and I said, mom, it's, it's okay. I forgive you, whatever it is. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it's, it's like 40 years ago. It's okay. Um, this was 10 years ago when I was talking to her, 15 maybe now. And she said, I'm so sorry, honey, but when you were one year old in 1965, your dad was a captain in the army. And they were talking about sending him to Vietnam and we were trying to get pregnant again. And I thought I'm going to be an army widow with two small kids. And um, I was devastated and, and terrified. And at the same time, my dad, your grandfather, was um, just getting out of prison. And I didn't know that he was guilty, and he was. I didn't know he was doing these things. And I'd idolized him my whole life, and so my world was just falling apart. And as a consequence, when you came running to me for love, or you know, cuddles, or to play, or even some healthy food, I didn't have the wherewithal to take care of you. I was just sitting and staring at the wall, feeling depressed. And so I kept a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup in a refrigerator on the floor. And I'd say, honey, go get your Bosco. And you'd go crawling over to the refrigerator and you'd take out the Bosco and you'd suck on the top and you'd go into a chocolate sugar coma. Oh 
right? And so, Mark, if this was a movie, at this point, mom and I would have this big hug and a big cry, and I'd never have trouble with chocolate again. Sure. <laughs> but it, it wasn't a movie, and, um, you know, we, it was a good conversation to have. I, I could forgive my mother. I could forgive myself. I, I became softer on myself for the mistakes I was making. But my chocolate eating got worse, as did the rest of my binging. And the reason that happened was because it was like there was this little voice in my head, which I now understand is the voice of my reptilian brain, which said, you know what, Glenn, you're right. Our mama didn't love us enough. And she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in our heart. And until we can you know, get out of the marriage and find the love of our life, we're going to have to keep right on binging on chocolate. Let's go get more right now. Yippee, let's go do it. So I said, well, that's a voice of justification. And so this whole time I'm thinking, like if you think of emotion like a fire, I'm thinking that I had to figure out what started the fire or figure out how to put out the fire if I was going to stop binging. But I said, what if I don't have to do that? Because you could have a fire, a roaring fire in a well-contained fireplace, and that becomes the center of hearth and home. People gather around and tell stories and cry and they laugh and they make memories. It's only when there is a hole in the fireplace that an ash can escape and burn down the house. And it could be the smallest fire that could still burn down the whole house. So I said, well, what if that voice of justification is the thing that's poking holes in the fireplace? You know, what, what if, um, you know, that voice that says, she, you worked out hard enough today. Uh, you can have some chocolate. It doesn't matter. Let's go get some. We'll start tomorrow. What if that's another little hole in the fireplace? And what if I focus on that instead? And so long story short, this is the embarrassing part. This is what I did, and this is what eventually got me better. I, I decided that I was going to make very clear lines in the sand to distinguish healthy from unhealthy eating behavior because I wanted to treat this like an addiction. I, I, I read a little bit about a book called Rational Recovery that talks about splitting the brain up into two parts to overcome um, mostly drug and alcohol addiction. And I said, well, I have to do the same thing for food. Uh, and so I, I would say something like, I will never have chocolate on a weekday again. I'll only ever have chocolate on Saturday or Sunday. Mm -hmm. And then I decided I was going to call my inner reptilian brain, I was going to call that my pig. And any thought, feeling, or impulse that suggests that I was going to cross that line, that was going to be my pig squealing. So when I heard that voice saying, you could just start tomorrow, you worked out hard enough, go get the chocolate, I would say, wait a minute. Chocolate on a weekday is pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. That's my pig squealing for pig slop. I don't eat pig <laughs> slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. Sure. And Mark, I was not going to publish this. This was not something I was going to use with other people. I, I just was experimenting to figure this out myself. And it wasn't a miracle in the sense that I didn't get better immediately, but it would give me those extra microseconds at the moment of impulse to wake up and make the right decision if I want to, or at least to realize that I had a decision to make. It didn't feel like an autonomic behavior anymore. I didn't feel like I was powerless. It wasn't like this mysterious force was controlling my hands and my arms and my legs and forcing me to do this stuff. It, it just you know, would wake me up and remind me of why I made the decision in the first place. And sometimes I would do the right thing. And then over time, I realized that I was the one making the rules. Nobody was telling me what to do. So why don't I just make rules that I'm more willing to follow? And maybe what's most important is that I follow my rules 
so that I can adjust the rules to accomplish, you know, the weight loss and health goals that I had. Um, maybe it was less important that I lost weight immediately. I just had to figure out how I could follow the rules because the whole problem was that I thought I was out of control and I couldn't help myself once I had that first bite. Sure. Hey, just wanted to thank you for being here. And if you're enjoying the show, drop us some lovely stars wherever you're listening. They really make a huge difference. Also, after requests from you, I've put together some mental fitness training packages in collaboration with Thrive Medicine. I'll work directly with you to help implement and personalize practices and routines to ensure your mind is thriving. Shoot me a message directly or check out the link in the show notes. Thank you as always and back to the show. So for the rules, Glenn, like, was it, so I, I mean, I re- personally relate to this and I imagine most people listening uh, have, have some sort of relation to everything you've just mentioned, given, I mean, we're all eating, we all have certain habits and we all strive to, to make changes. Right. But for the, when you started, was it like, what was, what was more helpful? Was it the very clear like just nothing, let's say during the week uh, for for chocolate, let's say, or or did you like build yourself up to these rules? Like, what was, pardon the pun, what was like the sweet spot in um, in getting to a point where you were making the decision that you wanted to make more often than than not? Um, the sweet spot was when I started writing down specifically what the pig would say mm. and why it was wrong. So, for for example, if it said, you've worked out hard enough, you won't gain any weight, so you might as well binge now. It's just as easy to start tomorrow. Yeah. I would write that whole thing down, and I would call that a pig squeal. And then I would say, well, why is that wrong? Well, it's wrong because if you have a craving today and you indulge that craving, you're strengthening the neurological relationship between the craving and the action. And so it's actually going to be harder to start tomorrow. You're, you're either always reinforcing your addictions or extinguishing them. Um, and so I'd write down why it was logically incorrect what the pig was saying. And, you know, you really, what the research suggests about the idea that you can diet tomorrow, you can start tomorrow if you decide you're going to start tomorrow, all you've really decided is that you're not going to do it today. It doesn't really, it doesn't really predict what you're going to do tomorrow. Like you look at people who say they're going to do it tomorrow versus who actually does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, all it really means is you're not going to do it today. That's all it means. So I, I would look at the factual evidence, and then it became difficult for the pig to get one over on me anymore. So now, you know, now I knew that it couldn't say start tomorrow. Then it would say just one bite you know, just one bite, but how many times had I had just one bite and wound up having 400 bites? Or I would say one last time and I would say, well, how many last suppers am I going to feed this thing? So that's what really made the difference. In terms of the kinds of rules, um, I found for myself and I also find with my clients that starting with a lower bar is better. Okay. So for, for me, only having chocolate on the weekends was better than not having it at all. Um, and I, I found that what the pig likes to do is set the bar so high that you can't possibly sustain it. So it's really setting you up for another binge. So I tell people you have to go to kindergarten before you go to college. So 
You know, start, start with one simple thing. Maybe it's I always put my fork down between bites. Or maybe it's all, I know a guy who lost 150 pounds and he started with, I'll never go back for seconds. He was a truck driver. He always ate fast food. Okay. And he didn't give any of it up. He just said, I'll never go back for seconds. And um, it was those types of things that, you know, these simple, easy rules to follow were profound nonetheless because they taught me that I could control it and I could stick to a plan. And I was really starting to believe that that was impossible. Yeah. Well, and you're seeing it on the page. I mean, I, it, I'm so happy to hear that, you know, just pausing and taking some time to reflect. I mean, this whole podcast is, is around reflective questions and there's a huge proponent to it revolving around journaling, whether regardless of how people are, are doing it, but it's just, it seems so powerful to take a few moments to, to go that extra mile on the reflection piece. Right. And then you can go back and see it visually like, okay, this week, you know, here, here were here were the moments where, to your to your terminology, where the pig was, you know, squealing loud, right? And or, or the reverse, I guess, like here's where I overcame it in some sense of accomplishment on on the rules or the goals. I love it. Well, and the other piece of that, Mark, is that to the best of my knowledge, writing is an upper brain activity, whereas binging is a lower brain activity. It's a like function of the feast and famine response. It's, okay. a perceived, it's a perceived emergency. And so the very act of writing down what the pig says, even if you don't know what the answer to it is, even if you don't know why it's wrong, the very act of carrying around a piece of paper and you know, writing it down or putting it on your smartphone and entering that cognitive land, you're, you're moving the battleground back to your upper brain where you originally made the decision. There's one more thing that made it a lot easier for me. Could I tell you? Yeah, of course. Eventually, I realized that you couldn't, you couldn't be following a rule forever like you were you know, scared of a Nazi police person. Yeah. Um, that just wasn't sustainable. What was sustainable was using the rules to become the type of person who blank. So if I said I will never eat chocolate on a weekday again, what I was really trying to do is become the kind of person who doesn't eat chocolate on a weekday. Ask people, could you stop eating chocolate during the week forever? They go, I don't know. Could you become the kind of person who doesn't eat chocolate during the week? They say, oh, maybe. Maybe I can do that. Hmm. And so I, I started to think about like just changing who I was with regards to food. And that made... That made all the difference. And then I also started to understand that that's actually how we develop character in the first place. So we, we have a whole bunch of unwritten rules, unspoken rules in our head. Like, you know, if you're at a diner and there's nobody at your table, there's no um, the video camera, nobody up front, and the waitress says, I'll be right back, I just have to get your menu, and there's a $10 bill on the table, because she didn't see her tip yet. Most people will say they would never take that. It's not even a question. And they'd, I'd say, why the say, I'm not that kind of person. I'm not a thief. Mm -hmm. So they, they have this unwritten rule that says, I never take other people's money. But um, it, it, they don't have to think about it all day long. They just, you know, it's just, it's just who they are. And so I said, okay, so what I'm really doing is developing character in a more conscious and purpose, purposeful way. Character is the habitual way that we deal with temptation. 
um, a way that I can count on myself to be in the face of temptation. And that's all I'm doing. I'm not asking anything of more of myself than everybody has to ask of themselves every day to, f- to fit into society. So um, all, all the things kind of came together. And, um, you know, I, I lost the weight, not immediately over the course of a year or two. And I lost about 80 pounds is what it come down, came down to. And, Amazing. Um, and now you're helping others in a, in a, in a time, I mean, at any time in, in, in history, it, it, it's good to fuel our body with good nutrition. But I mean, now more than ever being in a pande- the pandemic that we're in, that is, is, it's almost as if, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, how, how can I phrase this? I mean, I don't want to diminish the severity of, you know, the, the pandemic and people that are losing their lives, obviously, or losing their jobs and their income. I mean, these are terrible things. But what also isn't being really discussed, uh, almost completely not being discussed, is just how unhealthy we are as a society and how so many of the people affected have, you know, a, a laundry list of chronic disease, primarily, yes. right? Primarily, you know, it's becoming more and more obvious how food is, is, uh, the culprit to a lot of this, right? So it's it's like, why aren't we talking about this? I mean, we're, we're all talking about a federal mask mandate, which I, I would support, but why aren't we talking about, uh, you know, federal no potato chips mandate? <laughs> or, yeah, of course. You, you know, yeah, and if you can walk out of McDonald's and go into a Burger King across the street, like, why, why are we not talking about how that's influencing our immune system? And um, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. So how do we, uh, sorry, go ahead, John. Well, I could say more about the pandemic if you want me to, but. Yeah, let's do that. Absolutely. So the pandemic impacts our eating on a multitude of levels. First of all, it puts us all into fear mode 24 seven on the news, you know, like, what are the numbers? How are the numbers down there? How many people died? How many, how many cases do you have? Are we going to lock down again? Is the economy going to crash? Am I going to have a job? Am I, am I going to be able to even buy food, right? Is there going to be a, a famine? Are all the shipping lanes closed? Is, is fruit going to be available? Is meat going to be available? And that increases the perception of emergency action required in your reptilian brain, which gives it more dominance over your better laid plans and strategies and long-term goals in your, in your upper brain. So the natural state of things in the pandemic is for people to be afraid. And, and when you're afraid, particularly you're about food, then the reptilian brain says you better hoard all you can. So get all the calories you can uh, in the shortest time for the least amount of money. And you know, that's everybody jokes about, you know, they gained their COVID-19, right? Like most people gain 19 sure. pounds from, from COVID. Um, and by, by the way, my business absolutely exploded when this happened. Like we, we just, so oh, many people, imagine. people are just binge eating all the time. Um, and so what, what you need to do to overcome, overcome that is you need to take a breath and say, I have everything I need right now. I'm like, look around. Do you have dinner to eat tonight? Is there a roof over your head? Do you have heat or air conditioning or you know, shelter or someplace to, someplace to stay? 
Um, do you have people that you love or animals that you love or things that you love to do and can pursue? You know, I, I have everything I need right now. I've got everything I need right now. Take a breath, let it out and try to, you know, try to activate your parasympathetic nervous system, the part that says it's okay to rest and digest and think. And then ask yourself, let's say it was the end of the world. I mean, it's not. I, I guarantee this will end mm -hmm. and some bad things will happen. Some good things will happen. Mostly bad, but, but it's going to be over sooner or later. But let's say it was the end of the world. Do you want the end of your life to be representing a time when you let your more base impulses take over when you felt like you were a slave to your hunger? Do you want to be a slave to the big food industry and, you know, be just shoving, you know, bags and boxes and containers into your mouth? Well, well, some fat cat with a white mustache and a, and a suit laughs all the way to the bank. Um, I, I think that for me personally, I'd rather be a leader during this time. I, I'd rather know that this was the time when I found my center with food, when I, um, you know, when I stood up and took better care of myself than I ever did and showed people that even during the hardest of times, it's possible to take care of yourself. So I think this is a time when people can really, really take control and become a different person with food, especially, you know, so many of us are working at home and we have more control of our resources and time and energy. And, you know, we can, we can take the time to make some salads in the morning and put them in Tupperware and get ready for the day and all the things that are required to eat healthy. So, yeah. um, totally. Yeah. I actually, I, I, I find I've, um, I was a bit of the reverse since, uh, working from home. I've actually lost weight and I'm, I'm pretty conscious of, of what I'm eating, but you know, what I've noticed is, you know, when I was working out of a, a co-working space, you, know, you go grab a coffee and not, a, not every day, but every now and then, you know, uh, oh, maybe I will have a scone or something. Right. Whereas at home, we just don't have any of that kind of stuff. So, and, and my wife's at home and she's a, a wonderful cook, but there's just no snacks like that. And it was so obvious, uh, the difference. And there was a friend of mine too. I seen the same thing. It looked like he had lost 20 plus pounds. I'm like, what, like, what, what have you been doing? So I just haven't been going to restaurants. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. So it's, it's interesting. It can go either way. It depends on your, on what your patterns were. Yeah. 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 But I guess Glenn, how do we, because, uh, so the pandemic is obviously, uh, it's, it's put, putting essentially fuel on the fire to an already huge issue and being you know, we, most of us know for the most part or have a baseline of, of what's healthy, what's not. But even, even for myself that, that monitors this, it, it's so hard to understand what is actually uh, good for you or not outside of, of purely eating vegetables, which is probably a good start, but it's <laughs> right. Yeah, nobody, but I mean, nobody agrees on anything except for greens and actually not even that, but yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I guess my point being is, is especially, you know, you've had uh, experience in like the the big food uh, world or industry it's like we're just surrounded by false information in, in some way it's just so hard to, to 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 believe what's out there so i guess how do you work with your with your clients and your patients to 
start somewhere? Well, um, my program is diet agnostic. Personally, I've gravitated towards a whole foods plant-based diet for me personally, but I, I work with people on a variety of different dietary approaches, and I don't agree with all of them. Like I, like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed of trying to figure out what the ultimate human diet should be. Mm-hmm. And I think there probably should be one because if you talk to zookeepers, every other species, they'll tell you what the optimum human diet is. But for some reason for, I'm sorry, if you talk to a zookeeper, ask them about any particular animal, they'll tell you what the optimal diet is for all of them. Sure. But ask, ask, ask a doctor about a human and they'll say, well, it depends on your blood type and where you live. And I'm not sure I believe that. But that, that's besides the point. I work with people who are ketogenic and paleo. I work with people who are, uh, you know, who, who are, um, you know, raw. I work with people who count calories or do some of the major programs. It's what, what I know for certain is that people have good days and bad days and everybody knows what that is. So whether you're ketogenic or you count calories or you count points or you're, you know, vegan, there are days when you know that you're overeating and kind of throwing caution to the wind. And there are days when you're eating well. And so I start with whatever people really perceive as eating well for them. If you look at me personally, like I always kind of knew that a whole foods plant-based diet was what I thought was best. And I would have days when I did that and I would feel great. Um, But then the days when I didn't do that, I was having, you know, a pizza and a half, two pizzas and a box of chocolate bars and I could tell you for certain that even if my whole food plant-based diet was not perfect, if, that, if I made the wrong, wrong choice, it's still about 47 times better for me to have, you know, 2,500 calories of whole foods than 10,000 calories of pizza and chocolate. Sure. So I, sure. I start from that perspective and I just kind of give people control. And then I let them work with nutritionists and like with their own conscience and own knowledge about nutrition in terms of what to actually eat. And, um, you know, I find that people get better. I find that people get better. So that's how I do it. I appreciate that. I would, and I, and I resonate, I, my wife and I were, uh, we're on a whole food plant-based diet now for the last probably four or five years. Um, but cool beans. Yeah. And it's, but it's just, even for myself, I mean, you see all these, you know, all these studies, all this information related to uh, disease and chronic disease and, and, and whatnot that's being reduced on, on a diet like that. But then all of a sudden you have the, the, the exact same information, what seems on people on carnivore diets. It's just, it's so hard to sift through the data and the, the narratives out there. Right. Well, and you know, I studied research methodology for nine years, so it's maybe a little easier for me than other people, but even so it requires a lot of digging. Yeah. Um, People want good news about their bad habits. It's really easy to release junk science to the press and get all kinds of coverage for something that's really not a finding or just barely a finding or you know, a, a finding that was funded by a research study that wasn't set up correctly. So um, yeah, I, I, I actually, my perspective is like what, what do the animals that are most closely genetically related to us do? And if we're going to do something wildly different, then I think we have to, I think that's the far-fetched hypothesis and we have to prove that 
Um, we've got a really good reason for why we're so different. If, if we're sharing 99% of their genetic material, why should we eat, you know, 90% different than they do? Yeah. Um, yeah. so, so that, that's how I look at it and that's how I arrived at my conclusion. Totally. Well, and it's just, I, I, I like the idea or the, the thought process there. I mean, it, at the very least, just, you know, at least start asking questions, right. Or at least being open to, uh, under, understanding different perspectives and, and digging a little deeper. And that, I mean, that goes for, for, for any diets or any, um, you know, different approaches and whatnot. Appreciate that. I, Glenn, I definitely want to talk a little bit. I mean, you've, you've mixed it in obviously, cause it, it, it's a huge part of your, um, your story and your journey, but specifically I'd love to know, you know, a little bit more about your routine on mental fitness. Um, seems like journaling is, is a, is a part of your routine, but are there any other non-negotiables that you find help with, uh, especially now and in just life in general, you talked a lot about stress and being in, you know, in fear modes and whatnot. So what's, what's been working for you when it comes to exercising your mind? Well, I moved to the beach. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sitting and looking at the ocean right now in Florida. And um, when I get stressed, I go outside for 20 minutes and I feel better. Um, Exercise has always really worked for me. Like even just exercising at the gym has really worked for me, but there's something about being outside in nature and, um, it's funny. I, I used to love to be cold. I told people I would move to the North Pole if I, if I could. And I, I lived in New Hampshire where the state motto is live free and die, but it should be live, freeze and die. <laughs> yeah, um, <fair. laughs> it's, it's really cold there. And I used yeah. to love it. And I used to go hiking in the icy waterfalls. And, um, but now living in the tropics or subtropics and, and having the fresh air in my window when I go to sleep, it's hard to get too stressed during those times. Um, you know, I, I have several very close friends with some psychological training who I talk to when I'm struggling. Um, it's been extraordinarily helpful for me to have mastermind groups so that there are people who call me on my, and my BS when I get stuck in my own myopic thinking, they call me on that. And, um, you know, I've always had, I, I, I probably spent more on coaching and therapy than any human on the planet. I, I, I could produce about $4 million of checks over the last 30 years that I spent on, um, on coaching and therapists. And that's not because I'm so sick, but because I've, you know, I, I've always believed in the value of getting that external perspective. And, um, you know, and I, th- I think that if you fancy yourself to be an aspirational model or an inspirational leader, that you owe it to yourself to constantly have those sources of inspiration in your life and not let yourself get so grandiose as to think that it all comes from you. So all Love of those that. things. That, yeah. Love it. Are there any, just on the lines of uh, whether it's some of the coaching and therapy or your masterminds and journaling and whatnot, are there any reflective prompts that come up either on a frequent basis or when you're trying to make big decisions or you're in a block or, or whatever the case is, but just things that help you process a bit? Hey, you know, um, they're kind of simple for me. In the morning, I ask myself if there's anything I'm anxious or depressed about. And then I will 
write them out. I'll write out the worst case scenarios and I'll, I'll dispute those things the same way that I'll dispute the pig. Um, or I'll ask myself, what would I do in that worst case scenario? And then I find that the anxiety and depression disappears. Um, I will ask myself in the morning, what is the single biggest win that could occur today? If, you know, cause I always have a list of 43 things that I want to get done, but You're if I can only get one of them done, like what, what's, what's the biggest one? If I only got one thing done, what's the biggest one? Um, and then I ask myself, what's the smallest step I could take towards that win without any possibility of failure? Ooh, I like that. So it, I mean, it might be something as simple as open up a Word document and write the word the so you can start your sales letter. Sure. That's great. That's a great prompt. I love that and taking it a step further. I last question because I, w- I want to respect your time and, and and keep this as as promised for the 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 time allotment but I, i'd love to talk a little bit more about where people can get your book uh obviously i can probably understand why you wrote this and we just got a little tip or tip of the iceberg essentially i i, I feel on what's in that material and you've dedicated a lot of your time obviously f- in this space so why don't you share a little bit about the book and, and where people can get it Okay. Well, thank you. Um, the, the book was originally a journal that I kept for eight years once I discovered what was going on with the pig. And hmm. as I was getting divorced in 2015, I was a minor partner in a publishing company and they wanted to publish a book to prove that they knew what they were doing. So I took the journal over a couple of months and I turned it into a book. And my, um, <laughs> funny, the CEO of that company I read the book and then he called me back and he says, Glenn, don't answer pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And <laughs> he proceeds to lose a hundred pounds over a couple of years. And so along the way we published the book and, you know, I was in marketing a good part of my life. And so was he, so we, we knew what we were doing, but that just kind of lit the fire and we had no idea how far and wide it was going to spread. And we, we wind up with almost a million copies in distribution now. So you can get a free copy for Kindle um, or Nook or PDF at neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button and sign up for the reader bonus list. And when you do that, there are two other things that we'll give you in addition to the, the free copy. Um, those are the, the electronic formats. We, we do have paperback and Audible, but there's a charge for those. Anyway, but in, in addition to the book, you will get a... Uh, a set of food plan starter templates. So we thought through a set of rules that would be appropriate for just about any dietary philosophy. Okay. And then we also recorded a set of full-length coaching sessions. This is all free. So that you could hear what this this actually looks like in practice and how it takes people from feeling powerless and confused and hopeless about food to excited and powerful and optimistic in, in just one session. Um, it's all free. It's all at neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button and all of our contact information is there too. If you want to join our forums or social media or anything, you can get it all through um, the reader bonus list. So that's how you do it. it. Okay. It. What, um, what, what makes you smile most about all this work over the years and the book and you know, the, all the material just, you just mentioned? Every day when I get a letter from someone who says that it saved their life, yeah. I get people telling me they were having 20,000 calories a day and they don't do that anymore. It's like, it's, 
you know, I make about a third of what I used to make doing all this corporate consulting, but I'm just so much happier and I, I don't freaking care. <laughs> I just, yeah. Yeah. I don't care. So that's what makes me happiest. Well, Glenn, I, I mean, I want to thank you personally, obviously one-on-one for, for taking time for this conversation, but then offer uh, even bigger thanks from everyone listening and, and everyone on the other side that you've touched their lives and will continue to touch their lives when it comes to this topic, which is just, I mean, it affects all of us, obviously. So I just want to thank you for devoting your life to, to helping others in this space. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was great. Thank you, Mark. Thank you.